0: Anger Worldwide has been promoting and supporting World Mission for over 85 years. Our podcasts are free of charge. You can find out more about us at www.worldwidemission.org. We hope you enjoy this talk. I invite you to turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew and to Chapter 11 And making my way up these stairs is a reminder that, as someone has said, as the the sea draws the sailor, so the pulpit draws the preacher, is no small thing to walk up these stairs. And uh, I come with the blessing of my own congregation. Uh, Many of them will be uh, praying in this hour, although it's earlier in the morning, because they've promised to. And it is a very happy thing for me to be invited to come here and for this. I haven't deliberately stayed away, uh, but I'm glad that I'm here to take that monkey off my back after all the, the cajoling. And uh, I think my first visit to Bangor was as an eight-year-old boy, and it's always um, a great delight to be able to come in here and uh, uh, to be with you for these few days. I want to read from uh, Matthew and from chapter 12, and just from verse 15. Matthew 12 and verse 15. Uh, Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there, and many followed him, and he healed them all, and ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold my servant, whom I have chosen, my beloved, with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles or to the nations. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break— and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory, and in his name the Gentiles will hope. Amen. Amen. Well, just a brief prayer once again. Uh, Father, what we know not, teach us. What we have not, give us. What we are not, make us. For your Son's sake, we pray. Amen. Well I want us in these mornings to try and think about what it means to be involved in Christ-shaped mission. Christ-shaped mission. And uh, to use that phrase of course is not to suggest that Christ-shaped mission is one kind of mission to be chosen from a number of options, but rather that any mission at all any engagement, according to the Bible, is to be both in the name of the Lord Jesus and proclaiming his truth in the power of the Lord Jesus. The purpose of God from all of eternity in saving us is to make us like his Son. Uh, Paul tells us in Corinthians that we are being transformed into his image. And John says that one day when we see him, we will be like him. In the course of the mornings, we'll think about that in terms of the message that Jesus proclaimed. What I'd like to do is not work through just one passage, but this morning in Matthew, tomorrow, God willing, in Mark, and then in Luke, and then in John, and finally in the Acts of the Apostles on Monday morning. I want us uh, this morning, though, to think about our manner, or, if you like, our vibe, or, if you like, our tone every so often somebody may say to us, I don't like your tone. And we know exactly what they mean by that. It is possible to say things and to say things that are true, to say things that may even be helpful, and yet to say them in a way uh, that is not actually endearing. It's not warming, it's not engaging. And so, I want us to think this morning about how we actually approach people when we think in terms of mission. It is uh, mission to which we're called, and not admonition. Uh, we're told in various places in the New Testament that there is a place for admonishing. But, uh, for example, in 1 Thessalonians, we're supposed to admonish the idol. So, if you're an idle person this morning, if you're lazy, if, you turned on, if you're turned over in your bed six times this morning, then somebody next to you could nudge you and admonish you just a little bit but we're not supposed to be going out onto the main street of Bangor in a spirit of admonishment. Our role, our call in the world, is not to go out into a needy world and explain to them why everything they're doing is wrong, why everything is unhelpful, and so on. That is not what we've been asked to do. And so, what I want us to do is to think, then, this morning, and to be helped in thinking this morning— Uh, in the way in which Jesus is introduced to us in this passage in Matthew. If your Bible is open, and I hope it is, uh, you know that at the end of chapter 11, uh, we have that lovely invitation of Jesus. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy-laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. And then he tells us exactly who he is. I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. It's surely one of the loveliest invitations of all, and it's good to have in mind if you happen to bump into somebody and you're having coffee and they say to you, Well, what's involved in this? You say, Well, have you ever uh, heard the invitation of Jesus to come to him and to learn of him and to trust in him and to find in him and so on? Well, after Jesus has done that, Matthew then quickly tells us that the Pharisees uh, were not exactly on his program. And uh, we read, first of all, this incident concerning Jesus going through the grain fields on the Sabbath. And And the Pharisees are distinctly unhappy about this, and they're quite content to leave people hungry. And then he tells us the story of the man with the withered hand. They're also very unhappy about this, and they, in their religious orthodoxy, are glad to see the people left helpless. Now, you have the text before you. I think you can see that. So, it is against that kind of background—against that dark backdrop, if you like, of both hostility on the part of religion and hypocrisy on their part And indeed, actually, as we're told here, conspiracy—verse 14—the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. Now, there you have it. I noticed as I was walking around, there's a jeweler's here uh, somewhere down the street uh, on one of these avenues And it was said, uh, inspired by you and created by me, I think it was. And I noticed it's black, and I would imagine that if I went in with one of my inspirations, they would immediately bring out black velvet in order that they could show the magnificence of the gold. Well, Matthew gives us this black back velvet here—hypocrisy and hostility—and then it is against that that we are introduced to Jesus as gentle, modest, and kind— Gentle, modest, and kind. Let me ask you a question. What do you think the face of evangelicalism is, according to the average person in the street in the United Kingdom? And how quickly do you think that people would use those adjectives to describe the engagement of those who are prepared to say, we are committed to evangelizing the whole world? Gentle, modest, kind— Now, what Matthew goes on to point out in this little incident is that in this interlude here, we have the words of Isaiah being fulfilled. If you see the text, verse 15, Jesus, in light of all of that, he withdraws, he heals, and then you will notice he refuses to raise his profile Isaiah chapter 42 is the background, and again, if you would like to put a finger in there, into 41 and 42, then you will be in the right place. What you have here in Matthew 12 is the longest Old Testament quote that Matthew uses in his entire gospel, and he's quoting from Isaiah 42. Uh, Chapter 41 is a famous chapter for those of us who've memorized our bibles Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God, and so on. But later on in that chapter, Isaiah is pointing out the absolute futility of false gods and empty idols. In fact, as he draws 41 to a close, you will notice he says of them, They are all a delusion. Their works are nothing. Their metal images are empty wind." And earlier up in the chapter, when the poor and needy seek water, and there is none, and their tongue is parched with thirst, I, the Lord, will answer them. Let's just pause there for a moment. Think of that. When the poor and needy seek water, and there is none, and their tongue is parched with thirst, I will answer them. Now, you think I've just been wandering around for the last twelve hours, but I I, I have been doing my reconnaissance— And I I noticed that I'm going to be able to buy a shirt that was uh, previously eighteen pounds, and it is reduced to five. You've got to understand that Scottish instincts run very, very deep. But it's not just any shirt, and it's not just because it's five pounds. It's because it is a white t-shirt bearing the imprint of the late George Best. And underneath it says, a legend— And I stood, and I looked in the shop window, and I said, When the poor and needy seek water, and there is none, and their tongue is parched with thirst, there is only one who can answer them. And that one is Jesus himself, the Jesus who is described to us here by Matthew. And here is essentially the thesis of this morning. What was prophesied by Isaiah is then fulfilled in Jesus and is then in turn to be reproduced in the followers of Jesus. What is prophesied by Isaiah is then fulfilled in Jesus and then by the power of the Holy Spirit, is to be reproduced in the followers of Jesus. For those of you who are of a similar vintage to myself, you will find yourself immediately going to old choruses like, Be like Jesus, this my song, in the home and in the throng. Be like Jesus, all day long, I would be like Jesus. Well, what is Jesus actually like in dealing with these people? Religious orthodoxy, he scorns the needy, He approaches with gentleness, with kindness, and with humility. So, the end of chapter 41, uh, it is all a delusion. There is nobody to answer. Their metal images are full of empty wind. What is needed? What is needed is the Savior, and that is the plight of the world answered, then, in the provision of a Savior. That's why chapter 42 begins, Behold! Behold! Behold my servant whom I have chosen. Now, just let's let's allow this to settle in our minds because we're thinking about mission in the world, aren't we? They're all a delusion, their words are nothing, their images are empty men. What are we supposed to do now? Behold my servant. Here he is. That's what Isaiah was saying. And that is the answer that the whole New Testament pulsates with that we're introduced to the Lord Jesus who is the solution to the plight of the world. He is the only solution to the plight of the world. He is the only Savior, because he is the only one who is qualified to save. John Stodd, uh, years ago, said, Just as the world is becoming more aware of its need, the church is becoming less assured of its mission. And the major reason for the diminishing Christian mission— is the diminishing confidence in the Christian message. Well, I think we can add to that also, and part of the problem is the way in which that message is being communicated, whereby people find themselves saying, especially the younger generation, they don't like mean people. You can do all kinds of horrible things to everybody as long as you're not mean. So, when the message of the gospel comes across in our world as strikingly mean, then we realize how easy it is for people just to turn away and go in search of something else. Jesus was never mean. He was gentle. He was kind. He was humble. Uh, Lloyd-Jones, he says, "'The chief thing is the love of God, the love of souls—' the power of the Holy Spirit within us. In other words, the love of Jesus—may the love of Jesus fill me as the waters fill the sea. That's the kind of picture that is here. Now, notice what we're told. Behold my servant. Here he is, my servant whom I have chosen. This is Jesus. He's the chosen one. I'm going to put my Spirit upon him. He'll proclaim justice to the Gentiles and he will not be making a big fuss and bother. In other words, what you have there is reminiscent of what we're told on the occasion of the baptism of the Lord Jesus. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. This is my beloved Son. Listen to him. Now, notice just three straightforward things, and I'm not going to expand upon them, but I want us to make sure we get them. First of all, concerning this servant, he acts in dependence upon God. He acts in dependence upon God. In short order, all of the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ in fulfilling the purposes of the Father was exercised in the power of the Holy Spirit in the power of the Holy Spirit. Remember, Jesus actually says—John records it for us—he says, The words that I speak are not my own words. They are the words that the Father has given me to speak. And the words that the Father gave him to speak he then proclaimed in the power of the Holy Spirit. Again in Isaiah, uh, there will come uh, forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and immediately, what does it say? And the Spirit of the Lord will be upon him. Isaiah 61, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He has anointed me to preach good news to the poor, and so on. It's a straightforward, obvious, but necessary observation that from conception to the ascension, the Gospels testify to this reality—the power of the Holy Spirit resting upon jesus when Peter, in chapter 10 of the Acts, is giving a historical um, uh, statement and is explaining the impact of the gospel in the thirty eighth verse of chapter 10, he says, God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. All right? So, in other words, we note the essential rule of the power and ministry of the Holy Spirit— if we are to be involved in Christ-shaped mission. All we can do is nothing worse unless God blesses the deed. Vainly we long for the harvest field till Christ gives life to the seed. How does he do that? Hence the importance of prayer— Hence, the significance of coming to God and saying, God, we've never even been to Nepal. We can't even spell half of these things. And yet, here we are this morning in Bangor, and we're praying for the mission of the world. And we're praying for the enabling power of the Holy Spirit to be unleashed in our day. When Paul writes to the Thessalonians, remember, he says, Our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and in full conviction. I think one of the downsides of some of what has gone on in the last thirty or forty years, where in a rediscovery of the impact of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer, it is diverted as even from the outward look, whereby we go in that same power to tell others. I remember years ago I was speaking at another conference, different from this and way away from here, and on the night before I was due to speak— uh, the gentleman—it was an English gentleman, as it turns out—he uh, said to me, he said, and, uh, and what are you giving us tomorrow? Was how he put it. Uh, what are you giving us tomorrow? And I said, well, uh, what I'm going to be giving you tomorrow is I'm going to preach from First Thessalonians 1 and verse 5 that the gospel came, as I've just quoted it. And he said, uh-huh. He said, well, just so long as you're not giving us any of that unction stuff. That's what he said. And I remember being greatly unsettled by that. I thought, well, what, what have you got if you don't have unction stuff? What, is it, what, are you, what are we relying on? The ability to put sentences together? The influence of personality? No, we're just old clay pots. No. Oh. So, first then, independence upon God. Secondly, in accordance with his mission. And what was his mission? Well, I will put my Spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. Uh, this, is a, this holds great possibilities for a diversion at this point, which I choose not to take. Let, let me just summarize it in, really in a sentence or two. What, what, is, what, what are we learning here? Well, the servant of God brings the truth of God to God's world in accordance with the purpose of God in redemption, whereby justice is exercised and mercy is displayed in the cross of Christ. The outworking of our engagement in culture and in society is exactly that—an outworking of the message whereby with mercy and with judgment our web of time he wove. So, the Lord Jesus Christ is moving inexorably towards the cross, where mercy is great and grace is free and judgment is executed upon Jesus in order that those who are rebels against God and his Son may find mercy. So, it is in dependence upon God. It is in accordance with his mission. And then, and thirdly, it is in keeping with his character. Now, what I find most striking in this—and this is really why I've chosen to start here this morning—is that the distinctiveness of the mission of Jesus, as it is described for us here, is seen in what his, what his servant does not do. Is seen in what he doesn't do. Not in what he does. Behold my servant, my chosen one, in whom I delight. Now, let me tell you what he doesn't do. Look at that. Isn't it there in verse 19? He will not quarrel or cry aloud. Nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. Let's just stop there for a moment. He will not cry aloud— You know, when you read the Gospels and you think about Jesus, it, it must have been quite, quite difficult to pick him out. People would not have been—he wouldn't have been coming. Uh, I almost made a very up-to-date observation. But I was in Dublin yesterday morning. I wasn't there alone. And uh, no one closed the streets for me, let's put it that way. <laughs> I'll just leave it at that. But when, if Je- when Jesus came into Jerusalem, nobody closed the streets for him. The people would have been forced to say, Which one is Jesus? Why isn't he wearing a large hat? Or why isn't he doing something so that everybody could know who he is? It's precious difficult to find him. He's certainly not crying aloud in the street. He's not creating a fuss and a bother. He's not drawing attention to himself. He's not seeking to startle people with bravado. He's not shouting— He's not attempting to dominate the conversation by talking over people. He's not seeking to make his voice heard in the streets. Now, you see, how the, this must have annoyed the Pharisees. They're, they're already annoyed about this whole thing about the, uh, the, the bread, and they're not happy about the withered hand deal. And now, says uh, Matthew, records how, unlike uh, some people who like to make a big fuss in the streets. Remember how Jesus says uh, you don't want to be like the Pharisees who stand proudly, praying to themselves, taking prominent positions in the town so that people could see who they were and could understand how special they particularly were. Not so Jesus. It's hard to imagine Jesus tweeting, isn't it? It's hard to, for me to imagine Jesus posting pictures of his various… Uh, I've just put something on Facebook. I've just fed the 5,000. Thought you might like to know. Sending it out to all my followers. I want as many likes as I can possibly get. This is an amazing generation that has given the world the selfie— Or people walking around with gigantic walking sticks with cameras on the end of them, taking pictures of themselves. I know Van Gogh painted portraits and things like that, but I think he would even be surprised by this himself. No. You see, what we're discovering here is that the ministry of Jesus was devoid of quarreling. Quarreling. It was quiet, if you like, it was unthreatening, it was unassuming. It was winsome. It was the kind of ministry whereby he could get engaged with somebody in a way that others never could before the week is out. I will sit with him at the well there and see him uh, talking to a lady who had five husbands and was living with a guy, and he starts the conversation not by uh, reading the Ten Commandments, but by asking for a drink of water. What a strange beginning! Except, of course, for the thirsty who are parched, Nebuchadnezzar was a tyrant. Cyrus was a tyrant. Herod was a tyrant. All of these fellows insisted on their own way. All of them endeavored to intimidate the people around them, but not Jesus. Now, you'll notice what it says, that he deals gently with the weak and the helpless. Gently with the weak and the helpless. Jesus' reaction to the crowds, as uh, Matthew tells us earlier, and when he saw the crowds—we know this—and he was moved with compassion. Well, I wonder how we deal with this, the people who are harassed and the people who are helpless the people who are like sheep without a shepherd. Every Sunday morning, as I stand in the pulpit to preach, I realize that whatever the persona appears to be of the people in front of me, by and large, I preach to a congregation whose lives are marked by quiet desperation. By quiet desperation. Often well-concealed by vent of background and status and finance and so on. But if you probe a little beneath the surface, if you open up your own heart to the truth, you know— how essentially helpless and hopeless we are. How helpless and hopeless we sinners had been if he never had loved us till cleansed of our sin. That was what happened. He did not come in the first instance to ask us to clean up so that he might cleanse us. He cleansed us, and we are in the process of being cleaned up. Look at all the lonely people. Where do they all come from? Look at all the lonely people. Where do they all belong? If you go to Costa on the main street, to the right-hand side of where you ask for the flat white, you'll find that there is a frame that has about eight or twelve pictures in it. It'd be worth just going there to see that. Look at all these people. Where do they all come from? See, part of the great hypocrisy about getting involved in supporting world mission is that we're not even involved in local mission. Half of us. Would it be in the last week, the last month, the last six months, or the last year to we actually engage a total stranger with the good news of Jesus? How far back do you need to go to the point where you last had occasion to say to somebody, Do you know that God loves you? Do you know what Jesus died for you? Do you know this? No, sorry, I don't have time for that. i got to get to the prayer meeting for Nepal. Oh, really? you got a Nepal right in front of you. So do I. We all do. No. The servant deals gently— And so, you have these two pictures, not immediately apparent to us. A bruised reed he will not break. Now, whether the picture here is of a reed that might be used as a musical instrument, or a reed that might be used as some form of support, the point is straightforward—that these reeds were ten a penny. And once they were bruised, they were pretty well useless. They were plentiful, they were inexpensive, and it was quite natural to discard them and to replace them. In other words, what you have in the metaphor is a a picture of commonplace insignificance. Insignificance. Jesus does not discard the bruised and the broken because there are no hopeless cases. There are no hopeless cases. Not as long as Jesus Christ is Lord of the universe. And last time I checked, he still was. Bruised reads, Smoldering wicks. Smoldering wicks he will not quench. In other words, once again, functioning imperfectly, creating a lot of smoke but not enough light. The natural response will just just snuff it out. Discard it! Forget it! Who cares? It's the detritus. But no, he won't do this. He's moving inexorably to the day when he brings justice to victory, and it's in his name that the Gentiles will hope. What was routinely discarded, the servant redeems. Now, we don't have to look too hard to think about this in terms of practical application, do we? I mean, take the disciple band themselves. What an interesting group of individuals that Jesus puts together. I mean, I say it with as much respect as I can. But the longer they went in ministry, the dafter they, they seemed to become. Jesus has to say to them on a number of occasions, Have I been so long with you, and still you do not understand? Elementary things as well. Can you just see them there as Jesus is moving amongst the crowd— and some of the bright sparks at the front, making sure that everything happens the way they want, have come to the front, said, Could you please get the children out of here? Get the children away from here. Jesus is doing world mission. He's doing evangelism at the moment. Pardon? Yeah, Jesus would like the children uh, to to come forward. I told you not to say that. I told you that. Why'd you say that? Jesus, we tried the evangelism. It was a bust. Do you suggest we call down fire from heaven and torch the place? Jesus said, No, that's not my first plan. Just not right at the moment. From now on, says Jesus, you have seen the Father, you know him, and you have seen him. And Philip said, Could you please show us him? Wow! Wow! Thomas unless I put my finger in the in the marks of the nail prints in your hands I won't believe aren't you one of his disciples you sound like a you sound like a, a galilean no I'm not no not me who's that peter some people said he was the first pope one step forward and two steps back When he's on the gospel, he's blessed. When he's off the gospel, he's cursed. You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. Upon that rock, I'll build my church. Lord, it can't be that you would go and suffer and die. Get behind me, Satan. That's the group. That's the group. (laughs) That's the group he gets together and says, Now, I'm going to leave. It's better that I leave, because then the Holy Spirit will come. When the Holy Spirit comes, he will lead you into all truth. That doesn't mean that your Bible study you can find out what an obscure verse means. That means that the Holy Spirit would enable the apostles of God so to understand the truth of God that it would eventually be inscripturated in the Word of God so that we could read the Word of God and know what it is we're talking about. And he says, and it will be you that will go out and engage in the mission of the world. What an amazing, what an amazing reality. And yet, here we are this morning, I mean, I thought about it last night. I was walking around. I came to try to go to a church service at half past six. One church had no service. I thought, I'll go to the Presbyterians. They always have a service. They don't have a service either. Apparently, it was because they were having an eight o'clock service, which I understand. But don't you remember the old days when you didn't shut the service down? You just had another one. There's no judgment in that. It's an observation. Don't get alarmed. I want to be gentle, kind, humble in the way I treat you. (laughs) I'm just telling you the truth. I know there are practicalities involved in it, but that wasn't the point I was making. The point that I was making was there was no service going on, but there was all kinds of hullabaloo going on. The pubs were full. The music coming out of the wherever it was down the bottom of the street was going big time. And we were getting ready for world mission. <laughs> I'm sorry, but I think there was a mission— and there is a world, and it's right here. You see, in tenderness he sought me, weary and sick with sin, and on his shoulders brought me back to his fold again. All oh, the love that sought me! Oh the grace that bought me! Oh the grace that brought me to his fold! Here's my concluding observation. Since God has treated us with such gentleness, kindness, mildness, tenderness, and consideration, are are, are we then t- to go to a needy world with anything less than the same approaches Jesus? So Souls of men, why will you scatter like a crowd of frightened sheep? Foolish hearts, why would you wander from a love so full and deep? There's a whiteness in God's mercy that is whiter than the sea. There is a love in the eternal that is more than victory. Was there ever kinder shepherd, half so gentle, half so sweet, as the Savior who would have us come and gather round his feet? Douglas Macmillan died in his fifties. He was a Scottish free church minister. He moved from the highlands of Scotland to St. Vincent Street Free Church in probably the seventies. And, um, Actually, he was coming to speak at the Port Stewart Convention the year that he died. And uh, he told a story on one occasion when we were together of how when he moved from the north of Scotland to the, um, the second city of the British Empire, um, <laughs> he—there he, uh, were two terrific football teams, um, Rangers and Rangers Reserves—and— uh, <laughs> And he, and he told of how he was moving his books from, from the moving van to his study, which was on the second floor. And his boy, who was we at the time, wanted to help his dad. And so, uh, Douglas had given him um, a, f- a few magazines—probably Banner of Truth magazines tied up with string and uh, he said, Here, you can carry these up the stair. So, he was going about his business, and his boy was doing what he was doing. And then, as he came back into the house, he, he discovered that his boy was halfway up the landing and was crying. And he, uh, he went up, and he found that his son was struggling with, like, uh, um, E.J. Young's Analytical Concordance, which uh, even I have to have my wife carry around for me and— <laughs> Um, and he said his first instinct was to look at his boy and say, Oh, you stupid boy! Uh, why are you taking on that? And then he says, No, no. He says, That's that's me, too. He says, So I reached down, and I picked up my boy, and I picked up his burden, and I carried them all safely to their destination. Uh, surely, surely that's it, isn't it? that Christ reaches down into us. And how does he reach into his world? But through his servants. Behold, here is my servant, whom I have chosen, my beloved, operating in dependence upon God, in keeping with his character and in the fulfillment of his purpose. Just a moment of silence, just silent prayer, and then I think Jonathan will lead us